Welcome to the Thrive Church weekly message. We hope that you enjoy this podcast from Pastor Glenn Fraser, and we hope that it blesses you. For any more information on this sermon or any additional resources, visit us at thrivechurch.co.nz. Thank you so much, Glenn. Kia ora, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be back here at Thrive. I've never actually been here before, but... All the best speakers start with that, so I thought I'd give it a go. Well, um, as Glenn's just said, uh, yeah, my name is Matt. Let me tell you a little bit about about, about myself. I got, um, uh, believe it or not, I got married, so that's good. Uh, I've got a couple of beautiful kids over here. You wave to them. Good. Uh, They haven't gone out to Kids Church because they're actually going to help me out with my talk a bit later on, so you get to meet them. I like Hydra Slides. So that's a little-known fact about me, and uh, that's all the important stuff. So that's me. Glenn said I was in a band. I was. I was in a band. Uh, pretty much, it, it, well, it worked out like this. Three friends came up, and they said, Matt, we're starting a band, and we'd like you to, to be in it. And I said, what would I possibly do in the band? I don't do any band things. And they said, well, um, you could be the singer. We don't have a singer. And I said, that's ridiculous. I can't sing. And they said, that's fine. Um, we can't really play instruments either. So you'll fit in just fine. And so we started this band, and we were uh, fairly horrible. Uh, we called ourselves Krusty because that back in the early 90s, that meant you weren't very good, Krusty. You're a bit crusty, right? And we, we were fairly awful. The, the, the bonus was we were a Christian band, so you didn't have to be particularly good. And... Uh, <laughs> It's funny because it's true, and uh, and but we we actually toured New Zealand a few times. We uh, believe it or not, we actually ended up doing a six month world tour. Yeah, yeah, and we played in Atlanta in 1996 at the start of the Olympic Games. There was um, YWAM. No, we're not. We didn't open the games, but <laughs> but in fact, I, well, I, no, that's a different story. I'll tell that next time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was amazing, and we ended up. S- Sometimes playing before thousands and thousands of people. So I know anxiety well. When you're not a particularly good singer and you get up to sing in front of hundreds or thousands of people, then you know exactly what adrenaline feels like, anxiety feels like. And that is our topic uh, this morning. Who knows that we are now living in a very anxious nation? Who, who, who would agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, the stats are getting out of control. Here's a few New Zealand statistics for you about anxiety. One in four New Zealanders will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. New Zealand rates are only a second only to the United States. But at this rate, we may well overtake them. Anxiety is more common than depression, but less recognized. And in New Zealand, the average age that people start suffering from depression or other mood disorders is 31. But for anxiety, it's 13. 13. And so high school counselors now are dealing with, and teachers and parents are dealing with very, very uh, big issues in the area of anxiety. And it's a real uh, privilege to come along and give you some insight into this very important uh, topic. Now, you're going to hear me say all sorts of mean things about anxiety today. I'm going to make it out to be the big bad wolf. I'm going to tell you how awful it is and and what to do about it. Uh, Before I do that, before I talk about anxiety behind its back, can I just say... Actually, as Glenn's just said, actually, uh, a bit of anxiety can be a great thing. 
A bit of anxiety can be the spice of life, can't it? A little bit of anxiety may mean that you're doing something worthwhile, that you're pushing yourself. A little bit of anxiety provides motivation to do something extraordinary, to get over that small cliff or, you know. How much fun would it be to go to a theme park if there was no adrenaline in it, if there was no anxiety in it? Surely the fun of going on the roller coaster is that, is that clickety-clack as you head up the horrible bit. <laughs> and looking back on that, having finished, going, I did it. I did it. So a little bit of anxiety can be good. In fact, I, I worry about people who get through their wedding day without a good dose of anxiety. How many of you are married here and had a particularly anxious day on your wedding day? I think that's a good sign. Because you're doing a pretty big thing, a very big thing. My own marriage story is interesting. Uh, we, Belinda and I, had a whirlwind marriage. We went from meeting to marriage in five months. Don't recommend that to many young people. Uh, I asked her out. We were dating for, for six days, and then I proposed. <laughs> Which, again, I'm not suggesting if you're a young person sitting here. But uh, as part of that story, uh, three months um, was all we had to, to uh, prepare and then go through with this wedding. And that was fine. You can actually, you know, arrange your wedding in that time frame. But one week from the wedding day, I was freaking out. Uh, I ha- was so anxious all day, every day, all night, that I hadn't slept for a few days. I was shaking like anything. Um, I couldn't think straight, and I ended up with a massive, it's a great story, a big boil <laughs> under my armpit, like um, it was like the size of a golf ball, incredibly sore. I thought boils would just be like a, like a pimple. Pimples don't really hurt. Boils are, are agonizing. And um, I, was, I was in extreme pain, and I, uh, it, was, it must have been three in the morning again. I, had, I wasn't asleep again. I was really worked up and really, really anxious. I got in the car, and I went to the A&E, uh, to the emergency clinic, and I said, I, I got an appointment, I saw, showed the doctor, and the doctor said, now, Matt, uh, what are you so worried about? And I said, well, I've got this boil. I just showed you it. And he goes, no, 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 what, I saw that. What, what, what's going on in your life that's causing you so much stress, so much emotion, so much anxiety? I said, how? I didn't tell you I was stressed. How did you work that out? He says, you don't just get boils. You know, something's going on in your body that's uh, creating this reaction. And I kind of thought that when I left the doctors, he was going to give me medicine or, you know, pop it or do something cool to help because I paid him money, you know. And, um, but he, he didn't. You know what he did? He goes, you know what you should do? He said, Matt, you know what you should do about your boil? I go, no. He goes, you should just chill out. Honestly, what he said. Because when he said, what are you so worried about? I said, well, I'm getting married to this girl. I pretty much just met her. And we, just, we, we you know, went from meeting to marriage and, 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 uh, and we get married next week. I'm going to stand up in front of all my friends and all my family and even God. And I'm going to say uh, that I'm going to be with her no matter what. In sickness and health, till death do us part. I'm, I'm freaking out. And he said, you know what you should do? Just chill out. It's going to be fine. And I just thought, well, doctors know these things. They study for a long time. 
So I did chill out in that instance, and, uh, and my boil went away. That's bizarre, isn't it? I know. It was gone after a few days. Well, <clears throat> we're talking about anxiety today, and, uh, and not just the, 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 the good co- uh, kind. Not just the type of anxiety that helps you, but the big bad stuff, the stuff you want to overcome. So let's start with a definition. There's a few up here, actually, I've provided for you. Definition number one, anxiety is fear that will be hurt, made to suffer pain, loss, embarrassment, harassment, inconveniences, or other things we judge not good. Anxiety is, at its core, a deep sense that something's wrong. It's a conditioned way of, a conditioned way of looking at life that expects the worst to happen and tries to avoid what it dreads. That's William Bacchus. I've got another definition for you. One definition is never enough. An emotion that a person experiences in the face of a perceived threat or danger. The danger can be real or imagined. If the danger is real, the anxiety can serve as a positive warning. If that danger is imagined, anxiety is the negative baggage that weighs a person down, saps his energy, and leaves him ineffective. Now, if you can't be bothered memorizing these long-winded explanations and definitions, and I have a much shorter, uh, much clearer one, and it's simply this, that anxiety is fear in advance. Good mental health can fear. Good mental health can be afraid in the face of danger, in the face of actual threat. Bad mental health is when we jump the gun. Poor mental health is when we stay up all night long, every night, worrying about the next day, saying, what if I come to that bridge? Great mental health says, I'll cross that bridge if and when I come to it. A little bit of preparation can be fine, but staying up all night isn't helping me or serving me or my family or my job. So great mental health says, I'll cross that bridge if I come to it. Bad mental health, anxiety says, there's a bridge, there's a bridge, ah, there's a bridge. It's a different life. Not one that I'm keen to lead anymore. Now, there are, uh, if you're interested, two different kind of categories of anxieties. And so, uh, you know, if you talk to people who know what they're talking about, they talk about generalized anxiety, which is when you basically spend your life mildly or to, to severely anxious at all, the, at all the times. So we have a cat. We have two cats now. And when we got the second cat, our first cat, called Cassie, is incredibly anxious. She's actually developed generalized anxiety, which means the noises that never used to frighten her now frighten her. The things that never used to scare her now scare her. She's living in a constant, you can see it on her face, a constant state. And the vet says that's a a very expensive thing to fix. (laughs) They can give them anti-anxiety meds and all sorts of things. So there's generalized anxiety, but there's also specific anxieties. And to think about specific anxieties, you probably want to think of phobias. Phobias, specific things that I'm afraid of. How do these things develop? Well, step one, typically, this is a typical way that they develop. 
Anxiety forms through a past traumatic experience. Now, I want to interject here and say that traumatic experience could be your own, but it could be watching someone else go through a traumatic experience. I think a lot of Kiwis have arachnophobia completely unnecessarily. I mean, I'm not, like, how many of us have actually had a traumatic experience with a spider? Very few, I imagine. But how many of us have arachnophobia? Lots. Well, how? From watching a big person in our lives, a mum, a dad, a teacher, freak out at the sign of a spider. And how, what does your brain do? It just does the math on that, doesn't it? It goes, well, if the big person in my life can't cope with a spider, then, oh, I'm only little. I can't cope. And it files that information away. Stay away from spiders at all costs. That's how it works. As a result, the anxious person concludes they're extremely vulnerable to protect themselves in the future. They're going to have to start being extremely careful from here on in. And this is what they're thinking. This is how their self-talk is working. If I stay prepared and spend enough time thinking about what could go wrong, I can avoid stuff like this happening again. That's step one. Step two looks like this. Inevitably, they experience a similar situation again. Similar enough that their adrenaline gland goes crazy, causing a physical manifestation. Adrenaline is highly tied up with uh, anxiety problems. It's your adrenaline gland really firing on all cylinders when it shouldn't be. And lastly, step three is you finally develop irrational ways to avoid the very thing you're afraid of. My wife Belinda and I over the last 10 years have worked uh, with about 2,000 young adults in the areas of life skills and mental and emotional health. And when you're working with young adults in this country anyway, uh, you are dealing very, very often with anxiety. Young adults are a very anxious bunch. I mean, I think young adults have always been anxious about certain things like exams. Who remembers the pressure and the strain and the anxiety surrounding exams, if you study. Yeah, I think we can all agree with that. But nowadays, it's far more than just exams. Young adults today, they're worried, they're worried about. They're worried about exams. They're worried about job prospects and job choices. They're worried about uh, terror and terrorism and whether the bandwidth on their internet's going to run out. They're worried about their coffee being overdrawn. They're worrying, they're worrying if they're ever going to find the perfect person. There's so much more to worry about. They're worried about their student loan, and that's a newish problem, isn't it? The worries of the world. You know, there's that uh, story in, in uh, I think it's Luke. I don't know if you've read it lately or not, but with Mary and Martha, and Jesus is there. And you might have spotted this beautiful interaction between Jesus and Martha, towards the end of the story, uh, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. You are anxious and worried about many things, Jesus points out to Martha. I think if you could somehow book Jesus to come and talk to a young adults camp or a, a, uh, a youth camp, he'd probably say exactly the same thing to them. It would seem you are anxious about many things. All right, so we have issues here. Admittedly, I haven't studied the uh, anxiety levels on earlier generations, but I think, I really do think that we're struggling in this one. 
Well, I want to start talking about some, uh, some coping strategies or some ways forward. And I want to say that being prepared is always a great option. In our family, um, what we do is we go through some role plays with our kids. You know, nowadays when you're suffering from a lot of anxiety, you might go to the doctor and they're pretty keen to hand out meds. Um, that's their big solution, although hopefully they're going to um, get you along to a counsellor as well. The problem with medication is it never, ever teaches your mind to think properly. A pill can't do that. That's not in a pill to, to help your brain uh, think properly. I'm not suggesting that medication's a bad thing. I actually completely believe it's a God-given gift when used properly. It, it, it can uh, help us with all sorts of issues, but... But, uh, but if medication's all you've got, you're in trouble. What's needed is great thinking uh, with anxiety. And so I'm going to bring my kids up. Scarlett, can you come on up? This is Scarlett. You can go first, Scarlett. Give her a wave. So, Scarlett, how old are you again? Seven. Correct. Now, we do role plays like this. We don't really listen to a lot of music in our car. We kind of um, chat. We chat about life. We chat about the day. We chat about what might happen today. <clears throat> and my kids go to school very prepared. They go to camp very prepared. And so I'll just give them random, you know, scenarios. Don't know Scarlett. And Scarlett's very, very good at them. So I'm going to make one up. Now, have we prepared this in advance? No. Correct. Um, <clears throat> all right, I'm going to make one up. Scarlet, imagine you come in from the hall in our house and because you hear a big crash and daddy, me, that's me, I am under the fridge. The fridge has fallen over me. I was angry at the fridge and I was shaking it because it wouldn't give me what I wanted and it fell on me and now I'm, I'm, on the, I'm in the kitchen and there's a fridge on top of me and you can't lift it off, right? And I can't get out. What are you going to do? Um, call 111. You're going to call 111? That's a fantastic answer. Is there anything else you could do? Um, you could... Not too sure? Is there anyone else in the neighbourhood who might be able to help? Yeah. Who? Um, Tama? Tama, yeah, we live with Tama, so he could help as well. Well done, Scarlett. Go and sit down. Very good. <laughs> Jasper, come on down. Come on up. Now, we haven't prepared this, have we, Jasper? How old are you again? Eleven. All right, yeah, that's right. Uh, Jasper, imagine if you will, imagine if you will, you went off to school camp. No, it's a church camp. You went to a church camp thinking all your friends were going, but when you got there, none of your friends were there. And you were, you were facing like three days with no friends because none of your friends were there. What are you going to do? How are you going to cope? Um, I can make new friends with other people there like that I'm not usually friends with or like ask like teachers and stuff to like just help out, I guess. To ask the leaders to help you out because you've got no, no friends there. Give them a clap. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Thinking uh, in advance.
answer about scenarios is really, really, really helpful. Prepared. See, the problem with anxiety says I'm not prepared. What if is the big question of anxiety. And so to, to, to keep anxiety at bay, we say, yeah, what if? We actually go there and say, what if? We, we, we go with the what if. Instead of being scared of it, we think, yeah, okay, what if? If the worst came to, to pass, how bad would that be? How would I cope? You see, the lie anxiety tells us is that um, this thing will definitely happen. That's one lie. This thing we're afraid of will definitely happen, and if it does, I won't cope. But the reality is you've probably coped fine with a similar situation, and the terrible thing probably won't happen. We seem to magnify those horrible things in our lives out of all proportion. Second thing I want to suggest, uh, and I do this with the kids as well, is I will... um, I will vocalize the anxieties I'm going through. Not all of them, but I'll pick some. And instead of keeping them to myself, I'll say, hey, kids, how are you? How's your day? Good. How, and then they'll say, how's your day, Daddy? And I'll go, well, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I, I can't work something out. I'm not sure how I'm going to uh, you know, get over this challenge that I've got tomorrow. I'm speaking at such and such, and I, I don't know how to get there on time And and because uh, yeah, mum has got the car, and I'm not sure how to, how to resolve that. And I said, but don't worry. I'm going to get support. I'm going to ask a few people. I'm going to email someone and see if they can come and pick me up so I don't have to find my own way there. And they can hear me doing the problem-solving, uh, you know, in my mind, but, but out loud. And it's just role-modeling it. Awesome. I'm going to go to the next page as well, because uh, to the next slide, because there are some excellent reassurances. I've been listening to your podcasts, Thrive Church, and I know you know about truth coaches. So, because I hear some of your speakers talking about truth coaches, so here are some brilliant little truths that can help you with anxiety. And if you've got a phone there, you can even take a snap of a cheeky photo of this one. But the awful, awful thing probably won't happen, and even if it does, I will get through it. Just because something feels true and likely to happen doesn't mean it's will. Uh, it will. Events make the news because they're out of the ordinary. It doesn't mean it will happen to me. I'll cross that bridge if and when I come to it. And lastly, what's the worst that could happen and how bad would that actually be? Would I actually cope? The lie that anxiety says is you won't cope, but you will. You probably will. You know, I, um, like many of you, were, was living here in Canterbury seven years ago when we had the big earthquakes. And <clears throat> it wasn't the earthquakes that got my anxiety flared up like crazy. It was a couple months later, I know some of you remember this, there was that big earthquake off the coast of Japan. And the footage of the tsunami rolling in and the people trying to get out of the way you know, for someone with a couple of, I had, you know, you imagine my children's age at that point, I had a baby and a, and a toddler. And uh, just the idea of keeping my children safe with the tsunami rolling, and we live right next to the beach, uh, next to Spencer Beach. And um, I just couldn't work out how, just scenario after scenario after scenario in my head, I just like, I cannot do this. If, if, if there's a tsunami, I can't keep my family safe. It all ends bleakly. And at one point, I remember saying, God, help me out here. 
I just, I, I mean, I was, again, I was sleepless nights. I was just worrying and thinking and shaking. And as I began to process it with God, I remember something someone taught me years ago. Anxiety can be like an addiction. You can get addicted to worry. You can get addicted to worry as a way to stay safe, but it never keeps you safe. All the staying up late, all the scenarios, all the trying to work it out wasn't making me any safer. For some people, anxiety is like their friend. And Derek Prince said the most amazing quote one day. He said that God won't deliver you from your enemies only, uh, sorry, from your friends, only your enemies. God won't deliver you from your uh, friends, only your enemies. Anxiety is worth declaring war on. And so in those moments, it took me a bit of processing and a bit of support. I started to declare war on the worry. Say, Lord, this isn't helping me. Matt, this worry isn't keeping you any safer. It's not keeping your kids any safer. If that happens, if there's another big earthquake, if there's a tsunami, you're going to have to use your initiative, your God-given initiative. You've got plenty of it. And you're going to have to make some decisions and you're going to have to deal with the fallout. But uh, that's just what I did. And, it, and it's worked a treat. I didn't require meds for that, although I was happy to go on them. I just took a bit of processing and, uh, and a few friends. Well, if we could bring up the next slide, I wanted to kind of wrap this up. I want to suggest that underlying all anxiety is a sense of threat. And uh, we feel threatened in a bunch of certain areas. Um, who was it? Marshall Rosenberg, the American psychologist, said, everything we do is in service of our needs. Human beings are needy. We have needs. Uh, we could talk about the you know, clothing and the shelter and the food and the water and and those types of needs, but we actually have emotional needs as well. And so this is the biggest of the lot. We all need to feel safe. We don't just need to be safe, we need to feel safe. All human beings need to feel safe. Now, the way people feel safe is things like uh, getting, ri getting rich, financial security. We've even got a term for it, financial security. We've put our sense of safety into how much income we have, how much savings we have, how diverse our investments are, that sort of thing. We feel safe because we've got a job. We feel safe because we're big and strong, or we've got guns in some countries, or we can fight or run fast. We feel safe because we've got an army of people around us. What I want to suggest is that God has a different view of safety. God's well aware of our need for this, and God has a way to, to supply. In the Old Testament, one of the names of God was Jehovah Jireh, our provider, Jireh, Jehovah, our, the Lord who provides. God has a way to meet all of our needs, including this need to feel safe. And we have incredible people throughout Scripture in perilous situations who still find a way to process and find the closeness and comfort and security of God. And that security is on offer to all of us as well. 
You think of St. Stephen being stoned to death outside of the gates of Jerusalem. But God's right there with him. That those words in Psalms that, that uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear because he's right with us. He will comfort us. It doesn't alleviate the problem of the valley of the shadow of death. I'm still in trouble. I'm still in terror. I'm still being pursued by an army at that point, David. But he says, though this is going on, Lord, you can be my refuge. Lord, you be my refuge. I know many of you here have decided that God is your Savior, and that's fantastic. But why don't you make him your refuge as well? People choose some weird things as a refuge, a psychological place of safety. They think of familiar patterns of, uh, I don't know, behaviors. They think of familiar substances, familiar addictions, familiar places. But what about if you weren't, not just you missing out on proper safety, but God's missing out on providing that to you too? That God would love, he extends a welcome to you and says, I want to be the place you run. I want to be the one who takes you in. I can, I can supply safety no matter what's going on. Now, I'm not a kind of hyper, I'm not sure what they call it, triumphalist or whatever. The, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to this view that if, if God is, is looking after me and, and I'm loved by him, that nothing bad will ever happen. I don't believe that. You don't believe that, do you? I mean, look at Jesus. He said, if these things have happened to me, they'll certainly happen to my followers. So I don't believe that. But I also don't believe uh, some other people who say, basically, God has wound up the world and left us to it. That he's not going to intercede. He's not going to intervene. He's not going to provide any support. I don't believe that either. Some people say there's only safety in heaven. It's pie in the sky when you die, they say. I I don't think Jesus teaches that at all. And so uh, there's supernatural safety and there's natural safety and there's the support of others and there's grieving and there's counselors and there's pastors and there's parents and there's people around who can help and there's supernatural words of wisdom and there's making, I don't know, as wise a decisions as we've got access to. And I think all of these can have an element of safety to them. But ultimately, I love the words of Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Ultimately, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not angels, not devils, nothing. Not even death itself. So death has lost its sting, has it not? So many of the times we're so anxious and worked up for our safety because we think we've forgotten. We've forgotten we are more than a physical being. That we are body, we are soul, we are spirit. And that though our body gets damaged and ultimately perishes, our bodies get renewed. That nothing can snatch you out of his hands. So you may have taken God as your your saviour, fantastic. Why not take him as your refuge? The one you trust for your safety. Uh, Next slide, please. Significance. Wow, people do some crazy things nowadays, don't they? To be noticed. Have you noticed that? People do anything. If they can't get noticed for good reasons, they'll just get noticed for terrible reasons. They don't care. They just want to be noticed. Some people have confused, I think, being noticed for being significant. But this is a very 
generic, very common core emotional need that all human beings have, all parts of the world, all time periods. We need to feel loved. We need to feel special. We need to feel important. We need to feel valued, all that stuff. How do you go about getting this need met? Are you trying to get staff? Are you trying to get a name for yourself? Are you trying to get a title or a degree? Are you trying to get ahead, get people to notice you, get people to love you? When will you learn you're already loved? When will the penny drop that there's no more brownie points to win with God, that he just loves you and can't take his eyes off you, that you're the apple of his eye? And at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. And you don't have to do anything to be significant. God just loves you. Before you were born, he couldn't take his eyes off you. You didn't have to do to be loved. You were just an unborn child, and God's already going goo goo gaga over you. Just a proud parent. Just a proud parent. And so we're valuable because God gives us wealth. God pursues us. What does it say about us? It says we're worth pursuing because God's not crazy. He's not going to spend his life pursuing that which is worthless. He ascribes us worth. He, he calls us incredible. He says, I want to do life with you. He stands outside the door of your heart and he knocks and he wants to come in. Why? Not because he's crazy. Because it's worth spending his life with you. Apparently, we're pretty cool. Apparently, God's put something in us that's so incredible that God would prefer not to do life without us. Is that the story you pick up from reading the Bible too? Is that the story of the prodigal son? That God's not actually okay without us. Now, you might have, again, you might have taken God on as your personal Lord and Savior. That's fantastic. Why don't you take on his view of you too? Why not take on God's view of you? that you're significant, that you're loved, that you're valuable, that God would rather die than be without you. That's how special you are. And any threat to this, because someone doesn't like you, well, it doesn't really matter anymore, does it? People can think what they like. That's their business. Number three, progress. All human beings have this uh, need to get somewhere. We need to feel like we're maturing and developing and, and have upwards mobility or onwards mobility. We, we don't typically ask for demotions at work, do we? You notice that? When was the last time you downgraded a phone or, or uh, decided to go down the property ladder? It doesn't usually work that way. People want promotions. They want pay rises, not pay cuts. We like this sense of progress. The problem is uh, God sees progress kind of differently than most of us. And if we take on God's view, it, it eradicates a lot of our anxiety. If progress for us is in what we achieve, what we accumulate, and who likes us, and getting more friends on social media and more of a name and more of a reputation, those things can be taken off us at any point. Jesus said, don't build your life. Don't build on the sands that change. Build on me, the rock. And we need to take on his view of progress. So what's God's view of progress? Well, if you've been reading your Bible like I have, you'll know that God's view of progress looks everything like your character. God's obsessed with your character. He loves your character. 
His prayer for you is that you become more like Christ. Amen? And so you're supposed to love, you're supposed to, uh, I guess, grow in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I get that, Gilly? Uh, you're supposed to grow in these things. And the beauty of doing that is nothing can take it from you. Nothing can strip your character. You know, you read Paul's letters. He's saying, oh, the persecutions are pretty bad. You know, they're chucking us in jail and they're beating us up and they're torturing us. And he said, I mean, it's awful, but, but I wouldn't want the persecutions to stop. I'd like them to lighten up a bit, but I don't want them to stop because they're producing character and character hope. How are you working on your character? Are you a more generous person now than two years ago? You're supposed to be. If you abide in God and let his word abide in you, you're going to bear fruit. And one of those fruits is going to be generosity. One of those fruits is going to be grace to people who don't even look like they deserve it. One of those fruits is going to be, you're going to be a better and better listener because you're going to be less obsessed with others listening to you and you're going to have more time to be generous with your ears, with your understanding. Can you hear what I'm putting down this morning? Progress to God looks like character, and nothing can take character, nothing. Not an injury, not a tragedy, nothing. Not persecutions. But if your progress isn't what you're accumulating, that can be stripped from you. Number four. I'm getting there, folks. Innocence. Sociologists tell us that... uh, all cultures around the world have a mechanism to feel innocent. Uh, one of the ones we've got is we blame shift, don't we? Oh, yeah, but I only did that because they. We justify, we deny what we've done wrong. We've got all sorts of little tricks to feel innocent and, and guilt-free. But uh, I want to suggest that God has quite obviously and clearly made a way for us to feel innocent. And it doesn't revolve around comparing ourselves to others. That's the game the, the Pharisees used to play, and Jesus never played it. He didn't tell us to play it. You don't have to compare yourself to others to feel innocent. You don't have to be perfect to be innocent, to feel innocent. You can take on God's perfection. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? If you take on his, his work on earth, on the cross, and his life, his death, his resurrection, then we can get this need met without stress, without anxiety, without strain. Have you done that yet? Today would be a beautiful day to do so. I suggest you uh, uh, track down one of the pastors or myself and, and ask to pray a prayer and say, Lord, Lord, would you take my sin from me? Would you take my, my nature towards iniquity? Lord, I want to live for you and live for righteousness. Lord, would you exchange these dirty rags for ones as white as snow? Lord, would you come in and do that spring cleaning in me today? Lastly, our last core emotional need, we even put it in caps, is belonging. All human beings need to feel connected We need community. We need people around us. We need support. And I want to suggest that God's way to meet this need in you is not to get 50 million friends or to get everyone in town to like you, but to join a community of other believers under one name, Jesus. 
And that's exactly what you have here at Thrive. It's been such a blessing talking to you. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. And I, I hope you are, you're hearing me that most of the things that are underlying our anxiety levels is a sense of threat to that which is in no threat. Our safety, our significance, our innocence, our belonging. God has done it all. And in Philippians, it says there, God will supply all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and we need to remind ourselves that of that this morning. God bless you. Thank you. For any more information on this sermon or any additional resources, visit us at thrivechurch.co.nz. 